Hey, Billy, I'm wondering, have you been looking for a way to get better as a coach? Uh, always. That's good because you could do it by using GMS Plus. It's a great resource for courses, drills, stats, videos, tips, and much more. Many of the game's winningest coaches and players, including Heather Olmstead, Keegan Cook, John Spira, Mike Wall, and Courtney Thompson, have used it or are a part of it. They're also actually have been former guests, so you know they're good. Personally, I've learned a lot from Gold Medal Squared, as have many of our guests. So if you're looking to win a state championship or an Olympic gold medal, GMS Plus will help you get there. Get 20% off an annual subscription today. Go to goldmedalsquared.com backslash CYBO and enter CYBO. That's goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO and enter coupon code CYBO. Welcome to Motor Learning for Coaches. This show features Casey Kreider, Harjeev Singh, Andy Bass, and John Mayer. The mission of this project is to bring motor learning theory out of the lab and into your practice and game space. After one listen, you'll be ready to coach your brains out. All right, welcome back to Motor Learning for Coaches. Today, we've got Harjeev Singh taking the lead. Before we get into our topic, Harjeev, can you update us on life in the NBA? How's, how's things going? Yeah, things are going well, man. Thanks for thanks for having me again. Um, and, you know, it's uh, definitely uh, just learning a lot, man. Just kind of, you know, kind of going with what, uh, what the NBA gives you. And uh, it's uh, from a skill acquisition, motor learning sort of point of view, I think, uh, I think, you know, we're doing some good things league wide as well. Um, and so I think, uh, I think we're in a good place. I think it's just onwards and upwards from here. What would be an example of a, like a motor learning thing, whether it's with Orlando or league wise <clears throat> that you see people taking on or, or improving at? Um, a lot of the conversation nowadays has, uh, has shifted to more, you know, how do I ingest variability into, you know, my training design? Um, obviously volleyball has, has done it quite a bit for quite some time, but, um, to see the NBA kind of go in that, in that sort of uh, direction, I think it's pretty exciting. Um, uh, now the question obviously becomes, you know, where does the variability go? How, when, why, like all those things. So I think like that will eventually, um, come to fruition, but, uh, people are talking about it and that's all that, that I feel like that's, a, that's a pretty big win. That's awesome. It's not what I picture from NBA practice. I picture just doing the same thing over and over versus variability, but it makes sense. And that's, I think you proposed this as a topic getting into specificity and variability and it's probably why it's front of mind, but yeah. Could you take us through maybe just starting with redefining for people who aren't um, aware or understanding of what specificity is? Yeah, sure. I think uh, it's actually pretty interesting because I, I went back and I kind of started looking at like, the um, evolution of like the specificity of practice sort of um, hypothesis and then whatnot. And it was, I came up with like three things and this is kind of maybe like a point of discussion, but uh, in the, like the early 1990s, it was, it was basically defined as like motor skills are specific to like the sources of afferent information. That's like specificity, right? That was, that was how uh, it was defined at that point. And then I looked at more so like, how USA Volleyball defined it and GMS defined it. And it was like, you know, skills are specific to the task. Like that's what, uh, that was another term, like definition. Um, it's basically like, you know, you learn, I think it was like, you learn uh, like how you practice, like something like that. Like that was like the, 
sort of intuition there. And yeah, then, I remember that they'd always use the example like you can't learn to spike by throwing a javelin. Yeah, it's like a different yeah, yeah. overhead motion, right? That that would yeah. be like the classic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like that was like like the more coach friendly, you know, perspective. And then like there was also this was by like um, I think it was like Franklin Henry, but this is the specificity of motor uh, motor abilities. You know, so it's like abilities are independent, like the ability to be, you know, to time your, you know, approach to hit like that, that, that timing is independent. So how do you ability versus specificity? Like that was the debate in the, in the later 1990s. So I think all in all, when I think about it to myself, I, I think like specificity is like stability and capacity, capacity, you know, what's the capacity what are the capacity? And I think Rob Gray just talked about this recently in his podcast, which is very, very good. And I, I, I do episode, yeah. suggest everyone to look at it. But like, I think, you know, that's what specificity is. It's your stability in those specific capacities. Um, so I think I have an example here. It's like, you know, the, the, uh, the task of serving is actually the result of the capacity to serve. You know, so it's like, the, the task to serve the ball is in the capacity to get the ball hard or, or time it in a certain way or, or whatever, you know, those things, those things are. Um, and those capacities may end up just being attractor states, which is kind of what, you know, what I think we'll kind of discuss later on may or may not be, I'm just kind of, I took those definitions and kind of made up my own. So um, that's kind of where, where this is coming from, but, and then like, um, skill itself so this like you know the, the skill is actually just knowing how to operate within those capacities and that's how i kind of like looked at specificity right so if i put it in a nutshell it's like you know specificity stability and capacities skill is to be able to operate within those capacities um that's how i define it uh, and again i might be totally wrong but i think it's just a point of sort of discussion based off I don't think we actually know what specificity is. We've had so many different definitions of it over the past years. Um, so again, I'm not a coach. So from a coach's perspective, it may just be specific to the task, you know, just kind of play, like train as you would play type of situation. But, um, but yeah, I kind of just leave that for everyone well, to think that's of. That's <laughs> a good start. Uh, Andy, Casey, do you guys have anything to add in terms of defining terms there? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that that uh, comes to mind as I'm listening to Harjeev is uh, I, I felt for a while that that um, along the way there's been this conflation of the specificity of practice and the specificity of movement, if that makes sense. And we've made the mistake of saying, hey, practice uh, for good learning to occur, uh, practice needs to look uh, like the game in whatever theoretical position you take, there needs to be the same you know, set of specifying variables or information or whatever, or you need to be able to parameterize a motor program, whatever, whatever the, the theoretical position you take. The idea is that that the, the practice environment needs to in, in relevant ways needs to match the stimuli that you'll get, uh, in competition. Um, and somewhere along the way, we like took a hard left and started saying that, hey, the movements have to be like this. They have to be specific to whether it's a template or something like that. And uh, I think it's hard for me to tell. I'm probably not quite well read enough to know if that that sprung from the literature or that was a misinterpretation by people trying to apply the specificity of practice stuff. 
Um, but I don't, I think most of the stuff that I come across in biomechanics um, and biomechanic analysis, especially if you get into stuff like Paul Glazier's work about the perils of, of uh, aggregates and stuff like that uh, when, when assessing movement. Um, I just don't know that, that uh, there's a lot of, I think it's a really clumsy way to view movement skill in terms of the movements themselves have to be um, specific to a, a template uh, or a model or something like that. And, and I'm sure that, that Harjim and Andy can speak great, more to the, the idea of like uh, attractors and stuff like that. I think we'll probably get into that at some point, but, but um, I think the, the one thing that for me that, that I, I had to kind of, uh, I don't know, unlearn um, is that the specificity of practice idea does not uh, presume that all movements are uh, hyper specific uh, to you know a, a movement template or something like that. So, and I think that comes up a lot. Um, and uh, I just don't know. There may be some overlap in terms of ways to describe the evidence. I just think it's a really clumsy lens to say that the movement has to be specific. I think the the original idea of the theory or the the hypothesis, I should say, was that practice, the, the design needs to be inclusive of the stimuli that you'll see in the game so that you can learn to relate to it, hopefully in a varied way that would obviously, as you know, would be my, my preference, but just in general, um, I don't think that the implication was that the movements had to be hyper-specific to um, a, a specific way to move or anything like that. I think it was more about practice design. Yeah, I think I, I took it that way as a coach. My understanding was, yeah, we want to move in this specific way and the variability comes from that we won't pass a hundred in a row. We'll, you know, be specific in the way we want to pass, but we'll pass set and hit, and then we'll serve one, and then we'll get back to a specific way to pass. And any variability outside of that specific movement was a bad thing. But maybe Andy, you could take us through what variability, um, yeah, what I guess what is variability, and maybe the benefits of of variability. Yeah, and to kind of, I want to see if I can put together Harjeev and Casey. So y'all yep. please jump in. It sounds to me like this whole journey has gone from specificity of practice to conflating specificity of movement versus looking more at specificity of the perception action coupling. So let's take basketball, for example, that old homework basketball drill where somebody would lie on the floor on their back and they would have a ball right by their side and they would just throw the ball up in the air and then come down and catch it. And coaches would think, well, that's specific because that's the movement that their hand needs to make. Well, that's specificity of movement, but not specificity of training or practice environment. You have to, and I'm talking about part practice here, but it seems like that's where that hard left went when biomechanics started getting into the equation, which they need to be. And Harjeev, you can certainly speak to biomechanics way more than anybody in this call. But now that we could define the movement so specifically in quotation marks, we became very obsessed with the specificity of individual movement patterns versus the specificity of context and environment. Harjeev, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think you guys bring up some really good points because I think like this kind of goes along the lines of like what came like, well, not what came next because the, the idea of like representativeness was like, you know, way before. But um, like, like you see, you know, we kind of just went over like specificity of movement was, you know, is different. And I think that's like the how, right? That's like, that's like, you have specificity of practice, like the what, then you have the specificity of movement, which is more like the how. Um, but like Andy mentioned, like, where is the, like, what's the information, 
right? And that's more like um, what I think is, you know, representativeness. Um, and, and that's like, you know, what's the, what's the information that we're looking for? Because, I mean, I think it was, um, like even, even like, even Brunswick's idea was like, I mean, this whole thing of representative design came from just scientific experiments, right? Like that, it, it was a result of saying that, oh, the design of the experiment is the same as what I'm going to consistently observe over and over again. It's because of the design. Um, and I think like that's what the most important thing here is, is like, yeah, you can be specific and like practice, right? Like technically laying on the floor and shooting, that's specific, of course. But like, is it, the information sort of uh, the representativeness sort of, you know, uh, I guess uh, lever is not being pulled there, right? It's like how high, how low is the information going to be there? Um, and that kind of goes along the lines of like, you know, next, which is like, which is the variability stuff. And then, and like, how do we manipulate the what and the how? Someone want to take us into that, Andy, what do you got? Yeah, I know you'd ask me about variation, variability uh, on the previous question. And I, I think that as we think about specificity and variation, variation can be a form of specificity. It's dependent on the skill, open skill, closed skill on that continuum. Um, so a sport like volleyball, the representative design that Harjeev just discussed, there's going to be inherently for specificity, be a lot of variation. But in a sport like bowling or darts, the representative specificity may be less variation because of the taxonomy of the skill. Uh, and I think that's where any coach that's listening, it's, that's why it's so important to think about how open or closed is my skill? What is the information that needs to be coupled with quote unquote specific movement patterns that will emerge based on the information in the environment? So then what, what about, I mean, I see that example of how some sports have like more natural variation. But it seems like now the goal is to, like, even if it's a sport like volleyball, that's very random and there's lots of variation. We're, we're still trying to promote even more variation. Like we see that as a good thing and, and trying to, like, how many different ways can we kill the ball and trying to promote variation? Um, yeah, I guess, how, how does that, that fit in um, within this specificity variation discussion? Uh, John, I, I think... Um, for me, it was a little bit of an antidote to some of the stuff, some of the, the beliefs that I'd previously held about how in the volleyball setting, how do we best facilitate skill development? It was, we, we, everyone acknowledged that volleyball is much closer to the chaotic end of the spectrum in terms of its collection of skills as, as Andy used, if you were to create a taxonomy of, of the skills in volleyball, they're, they're typically close, as close to open, uh, completely open as it gets. Um, so, uh, for me, that idea was, is not so much that I was trying to do more. It's just to, to appreciate, um, that our sport is inherently chaotic, um, and, uh, to maybe stop trying to combat the chaos, uh, as much, um, uh, and to, to just say, Hey, let's appreciate that this exists and understand how to interact with it, not avoid it, if that makes any sense. So for me, um, it wasn't so much that I was like trying to necessarily amplify the inherent chaos in our game, though I, I'm guilty of that sometimes. Um, but it was more so like 
I think previously I'd been, okay, we're go I'm going to uh, specify exactly how we're going to move and so that we can combat all this chaos that, that exists and is inherent to our sport. And more recently, over the last maybe half decade or so, I've, I've gone more towards let's appreciate that this chaos exists and let's let's allow our practice space to exist with that in mind and with the goal of just developing as many functional relationships with the chaos as possible, as opposed to trying to combat it or minimize it or eliminate it or anything like that. It's more so our game is is uh, inherently random and inherently chaotic. Let's make sure that our practice environment is representative, to use that word, is representative of that. And uh, then from, from that spot, we're going to just go from there and try to, to better relate to that chaos and understand it and understand how to utilize it and um, that sort of thing, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Could you take us through an example of how like your teams would interact with it now or how you would, yeah, how you would see it as a positive in your, your practice environment? Yeah, I think <clears throat> uh, I'm trying to think of a specific example. Um, it's really tough when you're in it. Like it's just kind of the way you coach, right? So it doesn't, it's hard for me to, to discern one way or the other. Um, I think my eye as a coach uh, is much more inclusive of the outcome, um, if that makes any sense. So uh, it's also my, my goal as a coach is to create far less, if avoid in, in general, just stages of movement, if that makes any sense. So and what I mean by that is like, historically, the way I would have helped somebody become a better passer is I would have had some specific uh, movement parameters for them. Hey, do this, do that, hold your hands like this, move your feet like that. I would lower the challenge point pretty significantly depending on their current level. And I would kind of create these checkpoints, whether they were hard and fast, like, hey, you got to get eight out of 10 when I toss it to you before I'm going to spin it to you or throw it to you or whatever. Um, or just kind of me getting a sense using my experience, you know, going, okay, they've, they've kind of graduated from that level, um, to pretty quickly just acknowledging that the, the, the use, the most useful information for somebody receiving a serve comes from the serve itself and, uh, the direction, the speed, the movement, um, that's what they have to learn to interact with. So let's get them receiving serves and maybe I can manipulate the challenge of that serve but it needs to be a serve. And, uh, and then I'm keeping a little bit closer track of the outcome and uh, appreciating any out positive outcomes from different means, if that makes any sense. So if they did something different and it, let's, let's, I don't tend to go into movement parameters too much, but let's say they passed one to the target or whatever we're looking for with their left foot in front. And then the next one was their right foot in front. Hey, good day. You know, and if they did one um, to the left and then to the right, good day. If they did one in the middle and up top, good day. And ultimately, can we can we achieve that outcome goal? We're talking about degeneracy here, right? Um, but in terms of like, I wish I had like, hey, Susie Spiker, 2020, you know, she we uh, she was doing this. And I don't have, I mean, I'd have to think about it a little bit longer. But um, yeah, that's the first thing that comes to mind. If that, if that. Matters. No, that's a good example. You're putting them in a specific situation and. You're instead of looking for them to do it this specific way, you're celebrating some variability, some different ways that they've been able to achieve an outcome. I know, Harjeev, your original question when we were talking about this prompt was, was can we be specific, but less or more variable? Uh, could you take us through that question? Yeah, I think uh, this kind of goes along the lines of, you know, we can in terms of, you know, we could be specific in terms of our design of practice, but then 
again, like I said in the beginning, like where's our where's our levers going? So like we can be very specific in the design of practice, but our you know uh, in terms of our representativeness can be very low or high. Um, and then what is our variability on top of that? And I think this goes along the lines of like what Casey just mentioned in terms of quantifying this stuff. This stuff. And we could be like, you know, you can quantify this stuff on like a very easy scale. Like, you know, what, what was mentioned, you know, right from the front, left foot in the front. That's that's a, that's a good point or whatever, you know. But you can also like, you know, as we get into like this realm of big data, we can also, you know, start to quantify attractor states. And like how and how deep are those attractor states? How many attractors do we have? Um, and if you think about it, like, yeah, volleyball is like, hey, you know, very chaotic game. You can you can argue every sport is very chaotic. It's just about managing the chaos. Right? How are you managing the said chaos, and where is the chaos actually happening? Um, and I think like you know, depending upon like the if you look at the attractor landscape, um, you know how many sort of you know um, like like where are the attractors? How how deep are those attractors? Like where are we as an individual player, and then where are we as an as a full team? Uh, can we utilize sort of these, you know, whether it's just numbers in terms of you're making stuff up, but it gives you sort of a good insight if you know what, how the data works or, you know, you're really quantifying this stuff. You can come up with these types of things, but we've done it. We've done it all. Volleyball has done it for quite a, quite a while, right? We, 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 you know, we score our passes. Like, where did that come from? You know, so like this idea of like coming up with your own skills to do that. But back to your point, I think like that's where you kind of, you know, pull the levers. It's like, all right, well, how do I periodize all this throughout a season? Right? Where is my most specific sort of time? Where is my most variable? Where is my most representativeness? Can I be, can I like, you know, I can be less specific in a point where like, um, you know, in, in volleyball, I can be just, um, let's say, you know, serving with a lower net, right? That's still less specificity because it's not the not the game uh but it's more representative because mm -hmm. it, it's still a net mm -hmm. then where is the variability level going and i think like just back to like one of the, the uh earlier points like you know what is variability i think that's also very uh a very uh i guess a question that can take a very long time to define but i think like uh, and this is kind of what we'll go over, uh, I think what uh, Andy will, will discuss later on, but like, you know, the, and this is something that I kind of just thought of is like, can variability be in the fluctuators? You know, is, is like, is that variability, right? In order to develop the sort of uh, capacity or attractor states, more variability can help us fluctuate. Um, it's something that I've just been thinking of. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but like, you know, I think at the end of the day, like to your original question, I think it's kind of coming up with a way to actually like um, be able to quantify these things. You know, you may not have the thousands and thousands of data points that like the NBA gets or other teams get, but you can be able to come up with a system where you have an idea. And I think like that's where you know the coach's eye sort of like really, really is important. Would would those data points with variability they wouldn't be an outcome, right? You're talking more about like what Casey was talking about, like we're tracking like how often they're passing with their left foot forward, how often they're doing something like outside yeah. of the norm. 
Yeah, I think like, you know, I, and then that goes back to what, what the purpose is, right? Like where, like what, what's the purpose of the variability? Where is the variability happening? You know, how is it happening? Uh, and like, you know, how are we coming up with those sort of, you know, to those, those parameters, I think is, again, uh, comes back to the point of what the skill, what, what are we trying to get at? And then kind of utilizing, um, I think like this, I, I wrote this down for later on, but I think like, uh, a good way for coaches is like, you know, take the concept that you want to, you know, you want to get to take the the skill, the execution of the skill, the specific challenge point, and then come up with, you know, the activity that you want to do uh, rather than, you know, saying like, um, you know, I want to work on server pass because yesterday we sucked at server pass, hmm. uh, which is, you know, it's a hard sell because it's, it's half of it is an emotional sort of, you know, uh, sort of transaction it's like oh we sucked yesterday in servant pass so tomorrow practice we're just gonna do more servant pass but mm -hmm. like you don't do that when you think about like strength and conditioning right oh this guy was winded yesterday so we're just gonna run sprints today like you don't do that right and so like how do we take those concepts to kind of think about it? i think like we have a whole um it, i think it's safe to say that we have a we have a lot to do in in this field when it comes to like practical sort of application mm -hmm. Andy, I'm curious from the, Harjeet mentioned periodization and thinking about like being more representative at certain times, more specific or having more variability, less variability. Do you know with the pirates, is there any sort of periodization with that? Like, is I know you guys obviously are like playing all the time. So maybe that changes things, but is it like in the spring, in spring training, you know, really promoting variability and open to going lower on the representative dial? Or is there any sort of thought process behind that? I would say yes perhaps not the last two years due to COVID and the lockout where we had more general constraints. Um, and typically outside of COVID or the lockout of this year, I would say typically, yes, there is a, an ebb and flow of periodization and periodization and Harjeet, please uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, periodization isn't linear either. There can be a nonlinear periodization where it's not just a, we call it, we call it a ramp up, but there can be ramps down, ramps to the left and right. Um, so yes, going back to probably something we spoke about a couple podcast episodes ago, variation can happen at a micro level and variation happens at a macro level throughout a season. Mm. And with everything that I'm hearing Harjeev and Casey talk about, and I know there was a, a study published a little while ago, maybe it was Shulhorn was one of the authors, but they talked about how variation and differential learning. So it actually leads to sparks more creativity and movement. And if we believe that creativity and movement is representative of the game, then theoretically we should be imposing variation to allow that creativity of the athlete's movement style to emerge from a representative perspective, which is specific. Yeah, and I, I don't want to open up the differential learning uh, sure, sorry, rab me. rabbit hole, but, but no, I, that's a question I had is like, I mean, I think of differential learning, it seems like there's no such thing as like bad variability. I guess in your guys' eyes, is there maybe more effective, less effective variability? Is there a, a line I would there? say yes. There is a line between more and less effective variability. And I'll, I'll for me, I'll leave it at that. And what is that line? Um, that's where a lot of people like Harjeev need to be a part of the conversation. There's a, <laughs> I know there's a statistical test called the uncontrolled manifold where they actually were able to find in baseball batting a level of good and bad variability that led to greater transfer. This is where it comes down to, there's just so much that goes into this. And that's why so many different subject matter experts need to weigh in on it. 
Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. I think, um, yeah, I know we don't want to get a differential. I'll be the first one to say I think that's probably going to be the future of our our motor learning field and how we train, but that's later on. I think, like, um, the push towards biomechanics now, um, the push with, like, markerless motion capture, um, obviously, you know, I think, like, all the bigger leagues, MLB, NBA is kind of moving towards, like, optical tracking and, like, we still have, like, we'll eventually be able to get biomechanics every game, you know, that people play. And I think like that's going to give us a really good insight into good and bad variability. Um, and, I, and I do think there's a, there is a point where, you know, too much variability and too much noise is, is, you know, is bad uh, in terms of just, just injury wise. Um, but then too much may be good as well because you may be considered more flexible and, and more adaptable. Um, where that threshold is, I think like that's something where it's unique, obviously, to the individual. Um, I think it's unique to what they're doing. And I think, you know, being able to quantify the specificity, the, the representativeness uh, will help in, in, in that and considering the contextual nature of where this good and bad variability is. Um, sometimes I even think like, you know, this is probably a question for more more so like you know, academics, but like, is there a difference between noise and, and variability? You know, where, 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 when is noise and variability different or the same? Um, and I think like, if you think about it as a coach, you know, can noise be more like, you know, uh, I'll just stick to the what and the how, can noise be more of the what and variability be more of the how, like execution variability and like, you know, noise being uh, more contextual in nature, right? Like if I'm, if I say serve the ball uh, to, you know, serve the ball deep one, and I want you to hit a uh, open spot in that corner, and then put four people in that corner, is that considered high amount of noise? Because now it's like, well, shit, there's a, you know, I have to aim, I have to aim small. There's a, just an area that I have to go at, but there's four people there and you're telling me to, you know, try to hit a spot in that corner um and i think like if you think about it conceptually we start to i think it starts to make sense but like i'm not too familiar with more like the you know the theoretical sort of uh, approaches yet but i think like there's there's a lot in like big proponent of ucm there's a lot there's a lot in that that we can we can learn awesome well uh, maybe casey could you wrap us up with uh you could go whatever direction if you don't want to answer this question, but if, I don't know, if I'm a traditional coach listening to this and I want to take, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to take a small step forward after hearing this conversation, what would be the, the first step I could take? Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, biased, right? And I don't hide that, um, certainly biased. I, the first thing I'd advocate for is um, maybe moving away from having specific like hyper specific movement parameters that you want for for your athletes and uh, instead look for ways uh, to incorporate um, a little bit more nuance in the design of your training as it pertains to the informational variables that you're trying to get them to engage with um, and then the second piece to that if i could add on a little addendum um, 
I know I'm asking for a lot here, but we'll allow it. <laughs> just appreciate the moments that your your athletes achieve success, like meet the outcome goal in novel ways. Uh, I think it historically, and I, I was as guilty as this as anybody, but it's like, uh, hey, I know that the ball went where you wanted to go, but don't do it like that because later it won't work. And uh, or because over time, if you get 10 chances, it won't, won't work enough. And uh, I don't know that we need to to say those things. I don't even need know that we need to think that way. Just appreciate uh, the moments that they did something um, new and it worked. And uh, because I think the you've heard people in the past saying, hey, we're not teaching people. Uh, we're not helping people learn how to move. We're helping them learn how to learn to move. And it's getting you know a little bit iterative, but um, I, I think that there's something powerful there that, that our responsibility as coaches is to equip them with the mindset and uh, just uh, the interactive ability to adapt to these constantly changing circumstances uh, and not to, to define those, those adaptations themselves outside of the outcome goal. Now, is code, does that mean coaching just means, hey, hit home runs, don't strike out? no. It's not, but I think this idea of speaking to them through practice design, um, that the main means of conversing with them, uh, you know, in a metaphorical sense is going to be the way that we design the activities that they engage with. So, man, maybe if nothing else, just when you see your athlete do something kind of funky and it works, just give them a big high five and go, that was weird. And that was awesome that it worked as opposed to saying, no, don't do it like that because next time it won't work. Well, it worked this time. So can we just say, Hey, good job. And, and uh, foster this idea that like, Hey, I can try things differently and, uh, and explore. So as to find lots of ways to work, not just the one that my coach tells me. That's great. Yeah. It sounds fun. I mean, one, not to feel so judged, but two, to feel like you can innovate and creative and, and find, you know, unique solutions to, to your, uh, you know, own body and, and personality. Um, that's great. It's a great takeaway. And I think that's one practical thing people can do. And it was a great conversation. Thanks guys.